Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, July 24th, 2015. Oh, busy, 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 planning for the uh, Pirate Christian Radio Conference, our intimate setting this year. Now, next year's will be a little bit different. We're already planning next year's right now. Details probably in January. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And listen, I don't get a pass on this. You know, just because I do discernment, you know, here on the radio doesn't mean that somehow... You know, I'm incapable of not rightly understanding a text or not correctly teaching it. And so the idea here is we always say, never listen to fighting for the faith with an open mind. Never. Now, I don't want you to. Listen with an open Bible. Cross your arms. Be skeptical. Whatever you want to do, you go right ahead and do it. Just have an open Bible and fact check along with me if you would. And if what I'm saying is true and you you don't like it, yeah, I understand that. You know, I, I get it. If what I'm saying is, well, I'm not quite reading it right, well, hey, send me an email. Let me know if I didn't quite catch it. You know, you, you know, even I make mistakes. And, of course, that, that's not even – I shouldn't even put it that way. Of course I make mistakes. I'm a sinful human being. You know, does that make sense? Anyway, so uh, today is Friday, and this is the last uh, regular program before – uh, I travel to Denver for our uh, Pirate Christian Radio Conference, so a small conference this year, on purpose, intimate setting. Come hang out with us, by the way. It, you, you can still register, and you can register at the door if you want. It's only forty nine ninety five to attend. Uh, it's at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. It is next uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and uh, it's going to be fantastic. We're talking about Coram Deo, Coram Mundo. I know... <laughs> Latin phrases. Yeah, how do you expect to get a large crowd using Latin phrases? Well, I use the Latin phrases in order to keep it as a small crowd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 listen, the, the longer I do pastoral ministry, the more I'm convinced that, um, that smaller settings are actually more, have more impact than large crowds. People get lost in crowds. And, uh, and I think there's something very powerful about the fact that uh, you know, that in the congregation that I serve, everybody knows everybody. 
And uh, that's kind of an important thing. And, uh, you know, when people come to communion, you know, at the congregation that I serve up near Oslo, Minnesota, um, that uh, when they come up to communion, I'm able to, you know, look them in the eye and, and state their name and say, take, eat. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Take, drink. This is a blood of Christ shed for you and, and look them straight in the eye and tell them their name. And I know these people, I, I spend time with them and they spend time with me. And that's actually kind of an important aspect of uh, pastoral ministry that I get, I think gets lost. In fact, is non-existent in these uh, so-called mega churches. And so, um, you know, something to think about there anyway. So, you know, this year, intimate environment. In fact, I'm kind of vowing that, you know, we'll never, we're never going to have, you know, a pirate Christian radio conference in a 2000, you know, seat auditorium. I, I just can't pull myself to do that, uh, you know. But, uh, you know, I, I, here I am kind of venting my own <laughs> internal struggles and stuff like that. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, but, yeah, but coming back. So next week, um, there will be new episodes of Fighting for the Faith. They will be augmented, though. I've been recording interviews uh, and with uh, different people, and I will be releasing them Monday, Tuesday, um, Wednesday, I think it will be on normal light, and Thursday. So there'll still be new episodes of Fighting for the Faith next week, although they won't be our normal format. It's, you know, the, each, each day I'm going to be interviewing somebody different on, you know, different topics, but similar topics. They all seem somewhat related. So uh, that's uh, what we'll be doing for next week's uh, Fighting for the Faith. So those of you who go through withdrawals and you have yet to, you know, put yourself into a 12-step program in order to celebrate recovery from fighting for the faith um, you, and you don't want to do that, then that's okay. We, we, you won't have to go through as many withdrawals uh, next week. You, you'll still be able to get something of a fighting for the faith fix, if you know what I mean. So that's uh, next week. This uh, Today, what we're going to be doing is um, I've got a couple of things I want to cover today. Um, you know, by the way, um, you know, for those of you out there who are, you know, into Hillsong and stuff like that, if you don't think that Brian Houston believes in the word of faith heresy, that your words speak things into existence, well, I have a, a, a soundbite from the recently concluded uh, 2015 Hillsong uh, conference in Sydney, Australia, that I found to be a perfect example, if you would, a specimen of Brian Houston waxing word of faith and uh, the you know this idea that your words create reality that is not what scripture says and even the passages that he makes reference to don't teach that at all so uh you know we'll take a listen to that and then you know kind of uh, by way of uh, of an interesting somewhat disturbing story uh, a a uh, fantastic sermon by uh, John MacArthur has been making the rounds, and the name of it is We Will Not Bow. You can find it at grace to you at gty.org. In the name of the sermon, it was posted on July 19th, it's called We Will Not Bow. And uh, I was listening to it today, and there was a portion of the sermon where John MacArthur talked about how they had posted something on the Master's Seminary website. And uh, and they had received a cease and desist uh, letter, basically threatening the master seminary with a lawsuit um, over uh, the uh, you know over what was posted at the master seminary website. And this, I think, is an example of, if you would, kind of the first foretaste of you know what could potentially turn into 
uh, you know, coercive litigation. Sure, you have your your First Amendment rights to you know freedom of religion, and sure, the Constitution gives you freedom of speech. But uh, we're going to take you to court and uh, sue the socks off of you, and you're going to waste all of your your financial resources if you dare speak out regarding uh, you know same sex marriage. And uh, so I'm going to play to you a port a play for you a portion of John MacArthur's sermon. We will not bow. And uh, and then take a look at the resource that was posted at the Grace to You, um, not uh, sorry, at the Master's Seminary. And I did to have an opportunity to check with Phil Johnson to make sure I understood this correctly, so that uh, you know I can convey the facts of the story, if you would, to you uh, properly. And uh, but you know, this, this, I think that's quite the example, and I think it's worth noting. So, and, and then we'll do email, and then in hour number two, we're going to end the week off with three good, and I mean fantastic, Mark Bestial sermons that uh, are just stellar and worth passing along. So that will make up today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. Oh, and by the way, you know, we we stress this from time to time. I don't think I've mentioned this quite enough lately, that if you do want to enhance your listener experience, because everybody's talking about experiences nowadays, if you want to enhance your listener experience, the way to do that, by the way, is by wearing fuzzy bunny slippers. Yeah, this is the only program that is truly enhanced experientially, while wearing fuzzy bunny slippers, as long as it's not, not like super hot in your house, and then your feet sweat. So then that detracts from the experience. But I mean, because everyone's talking about, you know, worship experiences and having these experiences. So we want you to have a good listener experience. So if you can grab yourself a pair of funny, fuzzy bunny slippers to listen to Fighting for the Faith, that always enhances the uh, listener experience. So without any further ado, let's get to it. We've got Hillsong Praise update. The Lord, the cash I've got. Praising for my Rolls Royce and my yacht Serving God ain't hard with a credit card Jesus died so I could make a lot Praise the Lord, He's made us millionaires Wave your donations in the air We've replaced our hymns with ATMs And soon we'll charge a fee on every prayer Christ was a poor man, don't you know? He should have used our accountants for his cash flow. Stop the sermon on the mount, he should have had a bank account. Two thousand years with interest, he'd be rolling in the dough. Praise the Lord, this song's out on CD. Just forty ninety-five plus GST. Hallelujah, plenty and moolah. Solid gold baubles on my Christmas. Tree. I've got all of heaven's riches Thanks to all you stupid <laughs> Praise the Lord for modern Christianity yeah. Whoever said religion should be free there's our uh, Hillsong update music. So uh, what we're going to be listening to is Brian Houston from day one of the uh, 2015 Hillsong Conference in Sydney, Australia. And uh, this is, I think, a perfect example of literally the word of faith heresy. The word of faith heresy that says that your words create things. Apparently you're a God. And, you know, like God, you know, how he created the heavens and the earth by speaking them into existence. Have you ever thought about, well, stop using your words only to communicate and start using them to create? Well, yeah, you think I'm joking? Well, here again is uh, Brian Houston. 
uh, from the recently concluded 2015 Hillsong Conference. So this is like just a few weeks ago. And see if this sounds like the Word of Faith heresy to you. Here we go. I wonder what words you should be speaking right now, bringing your confession in line with God's Word, the same Word as God speaks, even giving thanks, that's what we told it is, homologia, speaking the same Word as God speaks. Well, homologeo, the, uh, the Greek word for confess, is to say the same thing. Now, the question is, when we confess, what are, you know, what are we saying? For instance, uh, you know, 1 John chapter 1, where it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, then, you know, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he throws out the Greek word homologeo, and, you know, as well, we got to say the same thing as God. Well, yeah, the, 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 the word for confess is to say the same thing. But the question is, what are we saying about ourselves? If we say we have no sin, if we confess that we do not have sin, we're not saying the same thing as God. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Scripture doesn't teach us to confess that we are the bee's knees. Scripture teaches us to confess that we are sinners in need of a savior. So uh, already we've got a problem here because he's playing super slippery and fast with the uh, with uh, biblical words, but uh, not teaching what they actually mean. Right now in your situation, whatever it is, I'd love you to start speaking words of faith. Start speaking words of faith. Well, that's different than actually praying. When we're in a difficult situation, Christ instructs us to pray. Pray. You know, ask God to help us. Bringing into being things that are not. God called into being the things that were not. Yeah, so apparently we, with our words, are going to call things that are not into being. Let me back that up and hear. listen again. I love you to start speaking words of faith. Bringing into being things that are not. God called into being the things that were not. Well, listen, I don't know whether you want to be doing that publicly. It might be too embarrassing, but if you want to, hey, that's fine. But if you just want to do it this time in your heart, but there's something powerful about the spoken word. I mean, to that mountain three times, says to that mountain, says to that mountain, says to that Yeah, again, um, says to that mountain. That's a reference to something that Jesus says. If anyone says to this mountain, you know, pull yourself up and throw yourself into the sea, then, you know, that'll happen. And that's kind of in the context of, you know, faith of a mustard seed and things like that. But uh, again, that's not teaching that we create by our words. You you just referenced the fact that God spoke things into being that did not exist and that somehow we can do the same thing. Where in Scripture does it say that we can create things that don't exist with our words? We're not God. We don't have that power, nor has that power been given to us. Mountain. In Romans, where it's talking about the confession of our mouth and the belief in our heart, it talks about in your mouth three times. Yeah, you're kind of missing the whole point there. Uh, Romans chapter 10 is uh, the, pa- the passage that he's referencing to. 
Uh, here's what it says, Romans chapter 10, verse 5. Let's put it in context, with the one because the one he wants to get to is down a little bit later. Uh, here's what it says, Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. So in other words, you want to be righteous by the law? Well, you got to keep living by them. But the righteousness that is by faith, that in, you know, by trust in Christ, says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. And what is that word of faith, by the way? That if If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. That means declared righteous. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13, is not about the word of faith in the sense that you can create with your words. This is about confessing that Jesus is Lord, confessing that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, confessing that Christ has died for your sins, believing that by faith. And this is descriptive of salvific faith not word of faith where you create things. So he's hijacked Romans 10, verses 5 through 13. We continue. And so I wonder what's facing you. I wonder where you could use words for creation and not just communication. What would you love to see come into being? So, I mean, what would you love to see come into being? You know, use your words for not just communication, but also creation. Again, word of faith heresy. Would you love to see growth in a certain area, a new beginning, prosperity, blessing, God's hand upon something, something in your life and something in your ministry? So speak prosperity into your being. Mm-hmm. Where does the Bible say that you can speak prosperity into your being? I mean, seriously. I mean, if the word of faith heresy were true, then, you know, whatever you do, do not sing the Oscar Mayer Wiener song. You know, because your words create reality. How does that song go? Oh, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer wiener. Then everyone would be in love with me. Right? So you you start singing like that. You never know what's going to happen. You can become like a, you know, five foot 11, you know, five foot 11 high hot dog. You know, word of faith here. Your words create, you know. Where you need a breakthrough right now, right now. Where we can, where you don't mind. Why don't you lift your hands heavenward? And whether you do it under your own breath or whether you do it out loud, I just want you to start saying, speaking. Don't be afraid of it. Saying, speaking, speaking out those things that you believe for in Jesus' name. Speak into the opposition. Speak. All right. Well, let me let me try this out. I'm going to use my words of faith. So I speak into existence the fact that Hillsong will collapse and their false doctrine will be abandoned and the leaders will scatter and will actually become orthodox. How's that? Into the challenge. Begin to speak to your own soul. Begin to speak into being those things that are not in Jesus' name. Speak into being those things that are not. So apparently you're a God, yet Scripture doesn't teach us to do this. 
Oh, come on. Let's really begin to speak it out. Speak into being what you see for your ministry. Speak into being that building that you don't have. Speak into being that growth in your church. Speak into being that second morning service, that third morning service, the evening service packed. Speak into being the new campus. Speak into being the teams that you believe for. Speak into being the business that God has promised you. Speak into being words. Speak into being the the business that God has promised you? Really? Have creative capacity. Come on, let's speak into being those things that God has put in our heart in Jesus' name. I believe for some here, for buildings, for facilities, for breakthroughs, for land in Jesus' name. I believe God wants you to have ownership, to be the head and not the tail, to start to speak it into being. That first home that I keep speaking about, speak it into being. Speak your first home into being. I mean, seriously, I when I got into our first home, and when I was married, you know, we, my wife and I got our first home, I didn't speak it into being. I saw it, you know, I hired a real estate agent, and they showed me the house, and, you know, we were making enough money, so, you know, we bought it. Didn't speak it into ex- into being. It was already there. Weird, you know? Makes you wonder, how did Christians get anything in the past without speaking things into being? As if you're a god. Again, this is not prayer. This is an alternate thing. This is designed to get you to not pray, because this is not prayer. It may seem so impossible, but speak it into being. I keep talking about a best-selling author. Speak it into being in Jesus' name. New songs, anthems, beautiful, beautiful. Speak it into being in Jesus' name. And now he's blaspheming by tacking on Jesus' name at the end of this false teaching. A worship song with lyrics so profound and tunes so sweet and beautiful. Speak it into being. Amen. Your brother's salvation, your wife's healing, your children's salvation. They turn around from their backslide. Speak the f- the fall of the mega churches into being here. Seeing people's lives lining up with the word of God. Speak it into being. Come on, speak it into being. Speak it into being. Don't be afraid to speak it into being. Father, we claim by faith the word of God. Help us to be people who speak the word of faith that Paul said that he preached. Father, I just pray it will be in our hearts and it will be in our mouths. Yeah, all right. I think you get the point there. That, I think, is a clear, salient, recent weeks old uh, example of the uh, word of faith heresy. Now, I do not have any John MacArthur uh, update music. Why? Well, because John MacArthur is not the Bible twister. You know, he's uh, he's one of the rock-solid good guys, you know, that actually preaches the gospel and stands by the authority of Scripture. Yeah, yeah that guy. Anyway, so that's why he, we don't have update music for him and why he doesn't show up in our first hour. But he shows up in our first hour today not because he's done something wrong, but because in his recent sermon entitled... Um, we Will Not Bow, which is a barn burner of a sermon. You can find this at grace to you Ministries at gty.org. It was posted on July 19th, 2015. In this segment we're going to be listening to, uh, and I'll play a, a little bit of context so that you can hear it a little bit before the, uh, the, the salient quote and then just a little bit after. Uh, John MacArthur is talking about you know what's happening in our society and then mentions something that happens at the Master's Seminary uh, after the Supreme Court decision when they posted a resource on their website entitled A Biblical Response to Homosexuality um, and uh, and what happened as a result of them posting that article. 
So without any further ado to explain all of what's happening in our society and, and uh, what I consider to be a salient example of coercive use of the court system or threatening of coercive use of the court system in order to silence Christians who are outspoken on what the Bible says regarding homosexuality, here's John MacArthur. I received a letter from a judge this week, a very significant judge in a very significant court. And he said in his letter, one of the duties of a judge is to marry people. I am now under government mandate to have to marry people of the same sex. I cannot do that. I cannot do that. He will lose his position. Clerks, Christian clerks across the country who issue marriage license and can't do that either are losing their jobs. The takeover is going to be massive. Christian people in high places are going to be replaced by people who will do what this court says you must do. I wrote him a letter back and I said, uh, I honor you, sir. I honor you because you have, you have ascended to that level of responsibility. You have shown common sense and wisdom and astuteness and brilliance in your field of law, and you have been given the trust of the people because of what you have demonstrated. And now, because of the quality and character of your virtue, you will be replaced essentially by someone with no virtue. Get ready, folks. The reprobate mind has now reached the highest levels, and that level will demand the reprobate mind everywhere else. And where that mind dominates, the end of Romans 1, where there is a depraved mind, then everything that's improper begins to happen. All unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And though they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. There isn't a judge, there isn't a sitting judge on the Supreme Court who doesn't know what the Bible says about homosexuality but they affirm it anyway. That's the reprobate mind. And it's now going to dominate our society. So we as Christians are the minority. But we have always been the minority. We, we've just had a reprieve in our little piece of human history. We, we are defined in, in, the, in the, the wonderful inspired words of Peter as a separate people, as a holy nation. Christ is our King. Scripture is our law. And in ways that have not been true in the past, Scripture and the laws of our country now collide head-on. Head-on. We're going to feel it. At the seminary, we put an article up on the seminary website about homosexuality. Within a matter of hours, we received a letter ordering us to cease and desist immediately or face a very severe lawsuit. Could we be sued for taking this position? Absolutely. Insurance companies that provide liability insurances for churches so that we're protected against lawsuits are beginning to say, we will not accept responsibility for lawsuits on homosexual or same-sex marriage issues. The church is out there all on its own. Now, you heard it there in context. 
The uh, article he was referring to, which appeared at the Master's Seminary website, which you can find at tms.edu, is entitled A Biblical Response to Homosexuality. It was posted by the uh, Master's Seminary staff on June 26, uh, 2015. And it links to other articles that talk about the uh, God's word on homosexuality, the truth about sin, and the reality of forgiveness. Talks about the church's response to homosexuality. I mean, there is there there are links to other resources that are there on the website that I think are valuable for Christians uh, to take a look at and look in you know, re- refresh their minds on what Scripture teaches regarding th- these things about sin and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, and that homosexuality in all of its form, from attraction to actual practice, are all condemned by Scripture as an abomination to God. And like he said, no sooner had they published that, that they received a cease and desist order, a letter from somebody, basically threatening them with an expensive lawsuit if they didn't take the article down. And this was posted where? At the at the website for a Christian seminary. So the the idea here is this, you know, you you want to preach about, you know, what God's word says regarding homosexuality, same-sex attraction, same-sex marriage and things like that. Well, um, yeah, it doesn't matter that you have the you know First Amendment right to freedom of religion. Doesn't matter that you are given the right to freedom of speech. You you sure you can have those rights, but we're going to make sure that it costs you. We're going to make sure that you pay for that privilege. And the way you're going to pay for that privilege is in attorney's fees, uh, while you're trying to fight lawsuits that are filed against you over and again for speaking out, daring to speak out against uh, the the powers that be and their decisions regarding uh, same-sex marriage. So, yeah, keep in mind, this is just what I would consider the tip of the iceberg, the beginnings, if you would, of saber-rattling, of uh, of the threats that are coming in that some of, uh, will eventually be made good on, if you would, uh, by those who want to silence freedom of speech, shut up the mouths of preachers, and get Christians to toe the line. With uh, you know, this new regime, you know, you are to accept and bless and tell us that God accepts and blesses our sin or else. Yeah, that's where we're at right now. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Higher Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we will be uh, answering some more listener emails. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> no, oh, no, oh, a pirate's life for me. We'll pillage with wonder, we rifle with loot, drink up the hearties, yo-ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot, bring up the hearties, yo-ho.
Theater presents Church Day Select. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to this week's edition of What the Buzz, where we show you the latest, the greatest, the most fantastic and controversial inventions in the Christian world of tomorrow, today. In studio with me right now is the infamous Dr. Ergen Kanner with his latest product called Ergen Kanner's Testimony Enhancement Spray. Dr. Kanner, please tell us how you invented this marvelous product. It all started when I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. My conversion to Christianity was a relatively mundane one. Being a run-of-the-mill Christian is not what we call exciting. I bet. But I would try to tell my pagan friends why they too should be Christians. All they did was laugh at me and tell me how pathetic my Christian testimony was. I knew then that if my story of how I chose Jesus was more compelling, then I would be able to reach more people. It wasn't until years later that I created the spray that you see before you now. Well, what does it do? It does exactly what I said it does. For example, after using the spray, I was able to completely change my Christian testimony. I went from being a boring, middle-aged man to an individual who grew up under the oppression of Islam. I was part of the Islamic Youth Jihad, and I had been personally trained by terrorists of Al-Qaeda. When I moved to America in my 15th year, I was plagued by ridicule and bullying in my high school. People would call me Sand Monkey and push me around like a ragdoll. I wished to crush the infidels when they stood. Luckily for me, I found Jesus and accepted him into my heart before I committed acts of terrorism. Instead of a bomb on my back, I now had the cross of Jesus. That's an amazing story! Has your spray worked with other people? Yes, yes it has. Take a listen to some unenhanced testimonies from these non-actors about my product. Before I used Ergen Canner's Testimony Enhancement Spray, I was a boring accountant working for a small firm in the farthest reaches of upstate New York. Me, being a Christian, was about as compelling as watching paint dry. Then I became a pirate from the 17th century who personally helped sack the Spanish main. I pillaged and plundered the heart and soul out of the Caribbean for many a year. Then one day... I miraculously accepted Jesus into my heart, and I was saved. I put up me cutlass forever and sailed to America with the hope of telling more people that Jesus died so that they might live in luxury. I was a simple stay-at-home dad who didn't have any real ambitions in life other than taking care of my children. I'd always go to my local megachurch and experience the presence of God. My friends who did fantasy football with me never really found my Christian walk to be that compelling. So now, I'm an ex-assassin who carries out hundreds of missions for the government around the world. There isn't anybody on Earth that I couldn't kill with a pair of chopsticks and a stick of bubblegum. During one of my last missions, I came across the family who had told me the good news, that I had the power to forgive myself of all the debts I had wrought. In that moment, 
I felt a change come over me as I led Jesus into my heart and I gave up my life of murder forever. I used to be normal and happy. Then one day my church counselor, Mr. Gary Sunshine, told me to go on an Emmaus walk to find Jesus. I guess I didn't trust in God hard enough because I was lost in the wilderness for over three months. Jesus never showed up and Mr. Snuggles didn't make it. I had almost died from starvation, then a helicopter came, and... What are you doing here? That's not a testimony. You do not even use spray. Get out! Um, you promised me five dollars for the testimony. I'm not paying you for that garbage. Get out! Be sure to pick up your very own bottle of Ergen Tanner's Testimony Enhancement Spray from Los Lobos Ministry Products. Order now! This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Uh, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that speaking things into existence is not what the Bible teaches. And, and that would be correct. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring... 
Fighting for the Faith 2 into the world, and you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95. That's it, every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, Senate to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Time to do a little bit of email. Back off on the email. We uh, remember there was a guy by the name of Chris from Thorndale, Pennsylvania. He cheated. He sent me a like a laundry list of questions. So we only did a few of his last week. So let's take a look at his other two questions, which may turn out to be more than two, because I'm totally cheating here. Is what he's doing here. He had some questions pertaining to the documentary Church of Tears. If you have not seen this documentary, I strongly recommend that you do. Uh, it'll give you uh, the ideological history, if you would, of what is going on in uh, much of the uh, megachurches. But anyway, uh, Christopher's next two questions are as follows. Thank you very much for promoting the Church of Tears documentary on your show and the Fighting for the Faith site. I watched it recently, and something struck stuck out that gave me great concern. A satellite pastor from the Crossing Church pretty much stated he will not do anything that would challenge or go against the vision God gave Eric Dykstra. Do these vision-casting pastors have sole authority in their church? Are they accountable to their elders? If not, and what concerns me the most, what is preventing them from becoming cult-like leaders who run a dictatorship and spiritually abuse those who would challenge them. By the way, the answer is they, they are accountable to nobody. The way this is set up, using uh, the Fuhrer principle or the um, uh, plebiscite model, which was uh, actually first kind of created by uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, is that uh, the accountability, the, the, the leader, the visionary leader, nobody, he's not accountable to nobody. Uh-uh, no. Everybody is accountable to him, and it starts from the bottom and works its way up. But you know, as far as you know, the vision casting thing, yeah, it, it, he's the vision casting leader. He has the vision from God. To challenge the vision casting leader is to challenge God himself. And so you know what they do with people who challenge the vision? They are unsanctimoniously escorted to the door, thrown out on their high knees, and then oftentimes will have... Um, Restraining orders issued against them. Just uh, that's how that really goes. And the answer to the question about you know what's keeping them from becoming you know cult like leaders, I would argue that many of the vision casting leaders in these seeker driven mega churches are cult leaders. Uh, you know, straight up. You know, uh, Stephen Furtick would be like the perfect example of that. So yeah, they 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 have literally set up you know cults of personality in all of these mega churches. And uh, the last one, uh, you know, Christopher Rice says, although I agree with the documentary that seeker-driven and vision-casting models 
are unbiblical, should we not rejoice if this method, albeit unbiblical, results in salvation for others? My brother-in-law is a pastor in Kingsport, Tennessee, and is influenced by Stephen Furtick, Perry Noble, Andy Stanley, and Mark Madison. The beliefs and core values of his church are almost a copy and paste from Elevation Church. And uh, when we talk about his church, he speaks with excitement about people repenting and placing their faith in Jesus. I'm thrilled if these new are true converts. However, what responsibility do I have to my brother-in-law uh, and to the body of Christ in confronting him regarding his unbiblical influences? I'd like to thank you again for your faithfulness. So uh, the idea here is this, is that I have no problem saying that, sure, you know, I'm sure there are some people who've been brought to penitent faith in Christ through vision-casting leaders. But see, the thing is, the ends never justify the means. And there are these means, there are serious, and I mean serious, problems with it to the point where, uh, you know, I've spoken over the years with so many people who've been run over by the proverbial church bus by these vision-casting leaders that uh, although they once confessed faith in Christ, they will never darken the door of a church again, and some of them have become atheistic or completely apathetic to uh, Christianity. So the idea here is is that uh, the ends never justify the means. You know, For instance, I'm reminded of this weird, strange group uh, that, uh, you know, was it during the, uh, d- during the time of the hippies, you know, that they, in- where the church, literally no joke, if I remember the story correctly, their women engaged in evangelical uh, prostitution. Yeah, and and the the you know the goal was to show unbelievers the love of Jesus and and to preach to them, you know, as part of the encounter, if you would. I know it sounds crazy, and and so you know you're thinking, well, all right, that's really really weird. Uh, yeah, it, it is. And so the idea is is that you know the ends never justify the means. Even if there's somebody who's a penitent believer in Jesus Christ today, as a result of that. Yeah, no, um, God's word forbids such things. So the idea is that you have a responsibility to warn uh, your pastor, your fa- friends and family that, hey, listen, this is not the biblical model that you know Christ has set up in his, you know, for his church. It's not part of uh, the revealed ecclesiology of God's word. And uh, and although you know you might be excited about the ends justifying the means. By disobeying what God has set up and not rightly following the office of the pastor, you're creating distortions in ways that you know you could be cre- having more damage done rather than good. Although you might, in the short term, experience some good, in the long term, this is not capable of doing what's necessary to uh, disciple Christians. So I would warn people about it that way. All right. Next email comes to us from Mark, and uh, hmm, I don't know where he's from. So uh, i got to think of an exotic location here. We already talked about Bangkok. Okay. Um, he is, Mark is from Chechnya. Okay. So, yeah. By the way, if you don't tell me where you're from, I just make up a place. So, um, so let me know where you're from so I can say that. Otherwise, you're going to be placed somewhere on the planet that you may not even be close to. And uh, Mark writes, he says, hey, Chris, I was listening to a podcast about Philippians 2, 12, and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and the speaker, LCMS Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, who, by the way, is one of our speakers at our conference. In fact, Pastor Wolfmuller's church is the host congregation for this year's 2015 conference. He says, and I tried to make out the Lutheran case, but I wasn't quite understanding it. What is your take? All right, let's... 
I got to open up my Bible here. Hang on a second here. And yeah, I'm using a computerized version of the Bible. Philippians chapter two. Yeah, I remember this passage. <laughs> you know, this is one of those passages that I, you know, that you know, made me think. Oh no, I've got to. I've. It's up to me. I, I'm not really saved by grace through faith. I'm actually responsible to, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, figure this all out myself. And 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 here's the reason why people misquote this is because they see where it says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and they miss the comma. It's the idea. This is just a matter of uh, finishing the sentence. If you want to know the Lutheran case, the Lutheran case is what is the biblical exegesis on this text. So Philippians chapter two, verse 12 says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, comma, comma. It's not the end of the sentence. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do and to work for his good pleasure. So the idea here is this. Yeah, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. It's real simple. This is not a text that denies salvation by grace through faith alone. In fact, it, it quite handily affirms it because it is God who works in you. So the idea here is is that yeah you know we walk out our salvation we you know you know we daily strive to mortify our flesh we daily strive to uh to not give in to the temptations of the devil why because it's god who works in us to do so to do these things so yeah you know, the the the, uh, the lutheran position on philippians 2:12 is read philippians 2:13 for it is God who works in you. Yeah, you, you get the idea. All right, next email comes to us from uh, Michael. And uh, Michael is in California, but he doesn't like the Dodgers. What? Are you... Man, I, I don't understand this. How can you be from California? Not, oh, that's right. Maybe he's from the San Francisco Bay. Yeah, we won't talk about those people. Anyway, Michael writes, he says, uh, Greetings, uh, um, uh, Chris, uh, greetings. I'm not sure if this is a good email to reach you to, but I noted... Earlier this year, you had called out some things about Cornerstone Ministries in Murraysville, Pennsylvania. About two months ago, I emailed the church about their Christmas performance using the song Happy, and I got a response from the worship pastor. Suffice it to say, it wasn't one where it made them think it was one that he said, because I don't go there, I should I should uh, butt out. Yeah, so the idea, just don't bother us is basically the idea. Yeah, so during their Christmas season, they had played the song Happy. Um, and so this guy emailed them about that, and they said, just leave us alone. So my concern is that I have my wife's family attending that church, and I feel for them because they left another bad church but didn't seem to too concerned with what Cornerstone was doing either. Sorry for my rambling. But my question would be, I noted your first concern with them was about their statement that God exists in three personalities. When the Word of God says three persons, if this makes sense, what mindset or thinking would lead a church to say God has three personalities? Blessings to you, brother. So, Michael, here's the idea, is that um, when a church starts talking that way, they are flirting with the heresy known as modalism. Modalism. And modalism teach that God exists in, you know, there's one God who exists as one person who manifests is Father and Son and Holy Spirit, uh, rather than there are three persons. Yeah, see, the idea is Scripture is very clear on this. One God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they communicate to each other, they love each other, they appear together, and they appear separately. 
And so the idea is, is that when somebody starts talking about God as man, uh, you know, that one God exists in three personalities, you, we've got a problem here. That's that's like a derivative of the modalistic heresy that teaches that God, there's one God, you know, with three different manifestations. No, that the the one God does not have multiple personality disorder. Uh, no, there are three distinct persons within the one true God. And yet there are not three gods, there is only one God. So that when a church, you know, like Cornerstone in Murraysville, Pennsylvania, says that there's one God who exists in three personalities, that's not orthodoxy. That is a heretical, substandard, non-biblical explanation regarding the Godhead that must be called out and rejected because they've, they've, the God they believe in is not the God who's, who's revealed in Scripture. That's a God of their own making, a God that is an idol that makes sense to their reason. Now, I don't understand how there's one God and yet three persons. My reason can't wrap its brain, I can't wrap my brain around it, and I can't figure it out reasonably. But that the point is, is that this is what God has revealed about himself in Scripture, and it is to be believed by faith, and your faith must give, your reason must bend the knee to what Scripture reveals, even if it doesn't make sense to your reason. So, yeah, the uh, Cornerstone Church in Murraysville, Pennsylvania, they're not teaching and do not believe the biblical, historic, orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. They're believing something different. And I hope that helps. All right, next email comes to us from Wendy, and ooh, I don't know where Wendy's from. All right, well, by the way, if you don't tell me where you're from, I just pick some place out on planet Earth where you can possibly be from. So Wendy is from, uh, well, she's from Vancouver, Washington. Yeah, why, I don't know, but just that's just how it works out. I mean, that's the random nature of what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, she writes, she says, an unemployed pastor said to me that he believes that man has the free will choice to accept the gospel or not, and that there is just enough of good in him that he can choose, and it is totally up to the individual, and that God knew from the beginning who would choose and who would not. He thinks R.C. Sproul is a hyper-Calvinist and John MacArthur is dangerously close to being one. He does not believe in decisional regeneration, and as that is the heir of the Arminian, is this semi-Pelagianism? Yeah, the answer is yes, it is. And here's the problem. And the problem is, is that the clear passages of Scripture clearly contradict this statement. And I'm going to point you to two passages in particular, and uh, the first one does this rather clearly. And it's the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9 through 13. And verse 13 is the clear one, but we're going to put it in context. This is one of the great Christological passages in the New Testament. And here's what it says. John, the apostle, writes, he says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, comma, here's the important part, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. Right there, it's very clear. You can even say a human decision, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man but born of God. That's what the text says. So here's the thing. Your unemployed pastor friend says that he believes that man has the free choice to accept the gospel or not, and that there's just enough of good in him that he can choose. Well, the scripture says we don't choose. So it's, it's, it sounds pious and all, but the, the reality is there's not a single biblical text that says that we choose. And John 1 verse 13 makes it clear that we're not born of God, 
by the will of the flesh, straight up. So we don't decide, we don't choose. And the other passage that is very clear on this is Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. In fact, next week on Fighting for the Faith, our extended, um, uh, not our extended, but our, our light episode next week, although all episodes next week are kind of like light episodes, but uh, when I do my Roseboro's ramblings, we're going to be rambling through this text. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I'm going to take it apart and uh, point this out in depth, but I'm gonna, I want to point out what Ephesians 2 clearly says. And so let's take a look at Ephesians 2, and we'll start at verse 1, and here's what it says. And you, you Christians in Ephesus, you were dead, 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 dooby-dooby dead. That's I added the dooby-dooby part. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So notice it starts by saying dead. What do dead people do? Dead people do what dead people do, which is nothing. When you were talking about spiritual deadness here. So scripture makes it clear that you, there isn't just enough good in you that you can make a decision. It says you were dead. Now watch the verbs in the next part, but God. So God there is your noun. And all of the verbs that follow when we get to it, that's the noun, the subject of those verbs. Here we go. But God, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Made us alive together with Christ is the verb. God is the one who made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with him. That's right. Raised us up with him is the other verb. God is the one who raised us up with him. And God seated us with uh, us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So notice we're dead, but it says God made us alive. God seated us with Christ. God raised us up with him. This is what the, the scriptures say. No doubt about it. So not only do we not choose, God is the one who makes us alive when we were dead. And then you have Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is not of yourself. So your your retired pastor friend is straight up wrong because he believes that we have the free choice and that there's just enough good in us that we can choose him. No, Scripture makes it clear we're not born of a human decision or the will of the flesh. Uh, you know, or even the will of man, and that we're dead, and that God raises us to life, and that we're saved by grace, and this is not of ourselves. If there's just enough good in you that you can choose, then, well, then it is of yourself. It is of a human decision, and God is not the one who m brings us from death to life. We were only mortally wounded. We were not totally dead. You know, you think of this in the way of the kind of princess bride theology. You remember, was it Wesley? You know, he had died, but he was, he was only mostly dead. Yeah. That, I'm sorry, but that doesn't fly in, in, in face of the um, clear passages of scripture. Last email. This one uh, comes to us from John and John did not tell me where he's from. Okay. We got to pick a place. He is from, um, well, where would I want him from? He's from Denali. Okay, so John from Denali writes, he says, I'm sort of curious about your silence on the matter of the 12-part miniseries being broadcast on primetime on NBC. AD, the Bible continues. Normally, you have been quite critical of Roma Downey and Mark Burnett. Yes, I have. And it does seem to be the case that whenever Jesus is speaking, they seem to miss the potential of what could have been. <laughs> Yeah, you think so. Anyway, uh, John, real simple. Um, yeah, 
the I the reason why I hadn't talked about AD the Bible continues is because I got bored with it. Uh, and the thing is, I couldn't really quite straighten it out because it became A.D. the Bible rewritten. For instance, do you remember that part in the book of Acts where the apostle Peter and the unconverted Saul of Tarsus had a preach-off at the uh, Christian commune that was living on Barnabas's property? You, you remember that part of the, of the book of Acts? Yeah, yeah neither do I. Uh, do you remember that part in the book of Acts where Mary Magdalene got a job as a kind of like a, a drink girl, you know, maybe a, a a waitress who serves drinks and, you know, at, at at Pilate's palace just before the emperor of Rome came to visit Jerusalem? You remember that part? Yeah, neither do I. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah see, it got, it got to the point where it's like, how do you untangle the mess that is this thing? I mean, granted, there were you know, little snippets and vignettes of, you know, the book of Acts that got woven into this other story with all these other details that are not found in the Bible. Um, so, it, you know, kind of, it was kind of like a, a fiction story with artificial Bible flavor added to it to make it have something of a Bible taste to it. Uh, so, you know, I, it, 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 unlike the Bible, which actually tried to follow the the story of Jesus AD the Bible continues is AD the Bible rewritten and you know there was like no way to untangle it. I mean the the only way I can say it is is that if you have a pastor who thinks that you know that you know that series is like the bee's knees and you you need to study it in your small group Bible studies um all I can say is I'll pray for you because uh you you really need to find another church if that's the case because there was like Nothing that I could point to and commend people and say, oh, yeah, yeah, this is really going to help you be a better disciple of Jesus Christ, because what was in there was just ridiculous. And unfortunately, they've you know signed them up for like season two of 80, the Bible rewritten. And uh, I'll probably end up not covering that as well, because it's like not worth even covering as far as I'm concerned. You know, if, if your biblical literacy is so bad that you can't even recognize that that is like not even from the book of Acts, I can't help you. So, all right, we're up on our uh, second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're going to end the week off with a couple of good sermons, actually three of them from Pastor Mark Bestial. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. The internet and the countless technologies around us, such as smartphones, tablets, PCs, cameras, video games, have become quintessential parts of our daily lives. In fact, our broadcast might be streaming on your phone right now. Communication and access to information has advanced faster than our ability to manage it responsibly. 
texting, and email are but two small examples of how technology has provided the means necessary to communicate over long distances, while at the same time giving people the ability to hide behind shadowy anonymity. By its very nature, technology is a double-edged sword. It provides the immediacy we desire and need, yet it also provides gateways for isolation from proper supervision. As adults, we can govern our own actions and submit to others for accountability. Or not. But how good are we at modeling or overseeing technology in the hands of children? Do our children have more knowledge about technology than we do? Do we choose to trust our children with such powerful tools without any oversight? Many people nowadays are aware of the dangers of the internet, such as cyberbullying, sexting, predators, stalking, trolling, video game addiction, pornography, etc., etc. But simple awareness is rarely met with measures of protection, appropriate oversight, or engaging communication. Typically, parents are trusting and simply managing from crisis to crisis because they don't know where to start or what to do in the first place. The Parentum was created as a centralized destination to provide parents information on the available security tools for all internet-connected devices. We provide educational instructions on how to protect families from technological immersion and information on a host of potential life-altering risks born from the dangerous elements of the internet. The Parent Dome's mission is to empower parents to be actively aware and engage stewards of technology for their children. Technology advances daily and those seeking to exploit it with the intent to cause harm maintains that same pace. At the Parent Dome, we continually update our website in order to properly address the changing needs of parents and families to better defend them against predatory exploits. Please visit us at www.parentdome.com for further information. Thank you. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end the week off with three good sermons from Pastor Mark Bestial, but we've got to do this right. Here we go. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're at equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermons there's three of them good ones all come to us via calvary lutheran church elgin illinois pastor mark bestial presiding now pastor bestial doesn't name his sermon so they are nameless we will read the gospel text that they are based on they're all we're going to work our way through the entire chapter of mark 6 is what we're going to be doing so we're going to start at Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. We will then go to Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, and then we will end with chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. See how that works? Yeah. <laughs> so let me go ahead and back off on the music, and uh, here is the first gospel text that forms the basis of our first sermon, Gospel Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, which reads... 
He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, then the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching, and he called about the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with uh, many with oil who were sick and healed them. Now, this is the text that forms the basis of our first sermon. Here is Pastor Mark Bestuel. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text, and he went about among the villages teaching. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, as St. Mark continues to tell us about the one stronger than the strong man, remember that's been his continuous theme and underlying emphasis throughout these last five weeks or so, he today teaches two important truths regarding Christ and his gospel. First, Mark wants us to hear the truth that the one stronger than the strong man allows himself to be rejected. That differently, he does not strong-arm people into the faith. Faith is a precious gift, the gift of the gospel, of a merciful and gracious God, not forced upon anyone as a law, and in fact, in the first half of our text, is soundly rejected because the gospel and our Savior seem too plain and too ordinary and too familiar. Jesus' hometown recognizes some of the signs of his identity as the strong one, as the one strong to save. They begin to ask, what is the wisdom given to him? Where did this man get these things? How are such mighty works done by his hands? But what do they do with the gospel and with the Savior in the flesh? They rationalize it all away. Isn't this the carpenter? Don't we know his mother, his brothers, his sisters? And the text says they take offense at him. There are various reasons people take offense at the gospel. Perhaps they're offended that they don't have the same powers as the Messiah. Shouldn't I get to save myself if I want? Perhaps they believe they are as wise as the Messiah. Shouldn't I get to define truth for myself? Perhaps they simply don't understand the gospel message because they've been taught or have self-taught incorrect meanings to all these terms they've heard before, sin and grace, forgiveness and salvation. As the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. Sadly, how many church bodies have contempt for the flesh and blood reality of the sacrament because it seems too earthly, too 
ordinary, too familiar to them. In our case, perhaps the phrase could be simply, familiarity breeds indifference. So often we grow indifferent to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ because we're too comfortable with it. It's too commonplace. It doesn't emotionally drive us to our knees. And instead of seeing ourselves as the problem, we want the gospel to change. Whatever the case with Jesus' hometown, they stubbornly refuse to take him at his word. Remember, by the way, this was the same occasion Luke records when Jesus reads the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, and explains that the reading speaks of himself. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That they cannot and will not believe. And our text includes an interesting phrase that says, He marveled because of their unbelief. There's only one other place in the Gospels, in the whole Gospels, that this word marveled is used of Jesus. He marvels at the faith of the Gentile centurion. I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel, Jesus says. As much as he marvels at the centurion's faithfulness here, he marvels at his own hometown's faithlessness. This should speak volumes to us, friends. God is not all that impressed with the measure of your faith. Only once in all of history did he marvel at faith. And yet sometimes we pride ourselves on having supposedly a uniquely strong faith, thinking that God must surely be pleased with it in its great measure, like he was the centurion. But the gospel is so simple he promises, and his promises to us are so straightforward. He marvels not at our embracing of it, but rather he marvels when those who have the gospel in their midst and who hear it with their ears and taste it with their tongues, he marvels when familiarity breeds contempt. And we say, this gospel just doesn't do it for me. He marvels because we take for granted and become indifferent to and don't safeguard and cherish and eagerly learn the truth and doctrine and take opportunity to receive our salvation in Him. Such stubborn faithlessness causes our God to raise an eyebrow. But He will not be deterred. Instead, He only increases His efforts. He goes out, about, or he goes out among the villages teaching, the text says. Another great reminder that, to be honest, the sky is not falling when the people of this land give up on the gospel. To be sure, it's strange and unsettling to us as we wonder what is becoming of our society. But the gospel goes on. If it will not be cherished here, it will be cherished elsewhere. If it goes to Africa and flourishes, so that there are now far more Lutherans in Africa rejoicing in the lavish good news of the gospel than there are joyful hearers in these United States, then thanks be to God. Therefore, friends, cherish and hold on to this gospel. Because where he is not welcomed, Christ will go elsewhere. And he will take his gospel with him. 
And he will leave behind only the divine law to do its dirty work of driving sinners to despair of their futility and repent. Indeed, friends, cherish and safeguard and be zealous for this gospel. For there is salvation in no one else. And this good and gracious God will remain faithful even for a congregation of 40 or 30 or 20 or 10 who desire his care and keeping. Now we see why the second half of the text is as it is. If those nearest to him will not hear the gospel, he'll send it out far and wide so that it can be heard. Jesus calls to himself the twelve and he begins to send them out two by two, giving them authority over unclean spirits. We need not get fanciful with our imagination about what that must have looked like. Authority over unclean spirits is the same thing the church carries today. When a child is baptized, the unclean spirits are driven out. When absolution is declared, unclean spirits are stymied. And so Jesus sends out the twelve. Two by two, almost as Noah sends out the animals from the ark to again bring life to the earth, Jesus sends out the disciples to bring life to the earth with the gospel. And he charges them to take nothing with, him, with them except a staff and sandals. Now, to be honest, if this were a sermon for pastors in the pews, we would admonish those pastors to keep focused on nothing other than preaching the word. They are not to be lovers of money. They are not to see in the office personal gain, nor a career path, nor a way to fill their belly. God will provide for them, and so they are simply to preach the word. That would be the admonition for pastors in the pews. But what does that mean in a sermon for hearers? Does it not mean that there's only one reason a faithful pastor proclaims what he does? And that reason is that the content of what he proclaims is divine truth. His only focus is giving you not his opinion about truth, but giving you the truth itself. Not his word, but Christ's word. Not to his own glory, but to Christ's glory. Not for his gain, but for your gain. Think about this for a moment. Why would Jesus say to the twelve, don't take any possessions or anything that even resembles monetary gain? Don't take any of it with you, he says. Is it not because pastors who are focused on such things will preach in ways that they hope will bring them more gain? They will not preach law to the supposedly big offering giver, nor gospel to the supposedly small giver. Or is it because hearers will at least think that the pastor is preaching for such gain? Or is it because the hearers may think such a successful preacher will teach them monetary success? But if pastors trust Christ to provide for them, then their preaching knows no theology of personal glory. In fact, there is nothing for them to do but preach Christ crucified and His doctrine. All of it. Telling it like it is. Not omitting what you don't like hearing. Not including only what tickles your ears. Faithful pastors have only one objective. Give all people the law and gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't like what the law tells you, tough. It's Christ's law, not mine. 
If you think the gospel sounds too good or too simple to be true, as though I'm only telling you what you want to hear, well, it's Christ's gospel, not mine. Therefore, you can depend upon it. Notice how this is wonderfully carried out in the church's practice of the office of the holy ministry. Theoretically, what would happen? Think about it. What would happen if a congregation decided that it didn't like the law and gospel of Jesus Christ? How does it get rid of a faithful preacher when he can't be charged with false doctrine? The first thought is to hit him in the pocketbook, take away his paycheck, and he will stop preaching. But nowhere did the Scripture say such things. A pastor is left without any pay. Well, yes, the congregation will lose much of his attention. Scriptural study, private confession, shut-ins, pastoral counsel, funerals. Because he would need to provide for his family with an occupation during the week that makes money. Fisherman, tent maker, etc. But he is still charged by Christ to be there each and every Sunday morning to preach law and gospel. Even as in our text, Christ, His law and gospel cannot be silenced. The preaching can only be held in contempt and shunned. Nevertheless, Christ remains determined. Perhaps this is why the twelve are sent out with nothing more than a staff and sandals. The staff is the tool of the shepherd for curbing sin and guiding to green pastures. And the sandals are the tool of judgment upon the faithless. John the Baptist is not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. And the faithless who reject the preaching of the full counsel of God are not worthy to have the gospel remain in their midst. And so the sandals shake the dust off and the gospel herald moves on. Now friends, the good news is to be found in this. Jesus is behind the preaching. He who hears you hears me, he promises. And Jesus sends the preaching to sinners. And he makes sure that you know this is so. So that when the law weighs heavy on you, you don't convince yourself the gospel isn't for you too. As if others might get to benefit from it, but your sins are just too great. In the face of such doubt that the gospel might also be for you, consider the Old Testament reading where God says to the preacher, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them. He could have rejected them and isolated them and denied them forever. But notice, friends, that the law and gospel doesn't go out for godly people. It's for sinners. If you come here looking for the godly, you'll find only sinners. In the face of unbelief and hatred and despising of the word, Jesus sends the word anyway. Thus says the Lord. He sends you the law to condemn your sin. And what a gift that is. What a gift that He sends you His law. For you would otherwise be forever blind of your need for the Gospel. He generously grants you to hear His holy law that it might drive you to the Gospel. And there in the Gospel He says, You, yes, even you, I died for your sins too. 
Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. That, by the way, should also give you confidence in your daily confession. How often we are hesitant to confess the faith to others because we assume the person won't listen. We reason, well, it won't do any good. He's not the type who would receive it well. Really? What type is that? The scriptures say there isn't a type who naturally receives it well. Nor is there a type in whom the Holy Spirit cannot create faith. Just ask St. Paul. So confess the faith to all. For Jew and Gentile, stranger and neighbor, family and co-worker, black and white, Democrat and Republican, all different types alike would benefit from the gospel. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, the word of God will have been among them. But as much as this instructs you in your daily confession, it ought to comfort you in your daily need for the gospel. Christ comes to you. Yes, it's in the form of flesh and blood. Yes, it's through the preaching of simple human men whose flaws you know. Yes, it seems far less than glorious. It's so familiar so as to seem worthy of only our indifference. And yet it's Christ's promise. And so we preach Christ crucified, Paul says of all faithful pastors, that you may hear the good news. Jesus and Jesus alone died for you. Jesus and Jesus alone is the one stronger than the strong man. He alone has authority over wind and wave, illness and death, even the unclean spirits. Did you notice that in our text, by the way? Jesus, it says, gave them, gave the twelve authority over the unclean spirits because he alone has it by right. He gave them authority in the same way he says, all authority having been given to me, go, make disciples, baptize and teach them all things. This is how Christ works, whether we like it or not. But through this means of preaching he has chosen, he grants you the word of truth. And so here it's simple message again. You are a poor, miserable sinner. And nothing you've ever done or ever do, ever think or ever say or even believe, will make you the least bit deserving of eternal life. But God became man to take your sins upon himself. He became flesh and blood to die in your place. He became a man of sorrows, acquainted with your grief. And he became the sin-bearer for you. And by the blood and merit of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, you have forgiveness, life, and salvation. This is good news worth cherishing. Truth that defines your faith in God and moves you to fervently love and encourage one another in it. No matter how much the world threatens the church for holding on to the truth, you may confidently admonish one another with the law, forgive and comfort one another with the gospel, and encourage one another as you point each other to and are together nourished, sustained, and carried forward by Christ himself unto the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. 
Second sermon, Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Here's how it reads. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, nah, he's Elijah. Others said, nah, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John the Baptist, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Sorry, a little bit of drama there. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the basis of our next sermon. Here again is Pastor Mark Bestule. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, for weeks and weeks now, we've heard the same recurring theme of the one stronger than the strong man going to battle against the devil, the strong man himself, and what all of that entails in in the early accounts of Mark. I suppose we could rightly carry that theme forward as it seems to underscore all of Mark's gospel. But last week's text, the beheading of John the Baptist, with the gospel proclamation that the gospel will carry on even when the messengers are fallen, that text seemed to climactically highlight that theme. Today, the sense of Mark's narrative shifts a little bit, doesn't it? The idea of a Jesus who wages war against darkness gives way to a Jesus of gut-wrenching compassion and to a picture of Jesus turning mob chaos into serene peace. It's not the only time in Scripture we see such a dramatic shift in focus. For example, think of our study of Revelation, how in three cycles the book's readers are always audience to scenes and descriptions of wrath and violence and desolation. And then suddenly the scene shifts to the peaceful serenity around the throne of God, where the whole church peacefully resides, and the Lamb in the midst of them is there Shepherd. Well, amidst the warfare we've heard in the last weeks, Jesus with power to overcome wind and wave, devil and demonic, illness and death, 
and yet his gospel being rejected by his hometown, received by the crowds. But then his gospel herald, having languished in prison, has his head chopped from his shoulders. Amidst all that warfare comes this text, and Jesus has compassion on the crowd, for they were as sheep without a shepherd. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, Revelation says. It's an image of serenity for the church in the midst of chaos, not unlike we sang in our sermon hymn. Though with a scornful wonder the world sees her oppressed, by schism rent asunder, by heresy distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping. Sort of sounds like John the Baptist, doesn't it? The cry goes up, how long? Sounds like John the Baptist, doesn't it? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Sounds like the crowds who had followed John the Baptist and now follow Jesus, doesn't it? As the hymn goes on, through toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. You see, the church knows the reality of chaos and the needs and brokenness of a sinful world all around it. And the church herself suffers on account of such brokenness. Suffers from without, also suffers from within, from within her own ranks. Especially where right doctrine is silenced and she is left to wander aimlessly. And yet here into this scene steps Christ, who looks out and surveys her desperate need and promises she will not be as sheep without a shepherd. Now to demonstrate that this thematic vision I paint for you is grounded firmly in the historical truth of the account, let's consider the text carefully. For all four Gospels record this event. It is such a loved account, probably because it teaches us so well the identity and life of the church, but probably also because it includes such an amazing miracle. We're people who love numbers games. And stretching five and two over 5,000 seems almost more miraculous than raising the dead. But though all four Gospels record this event, they each offer different details that clarify for us the theology of the occasion. For example, in just a few weeks, our readings will focus on John 6, which is this exact account, but which includes Jesus' great commentary on himself as the bread of heaven and on his flesh and blood as the sacramental life of the world. For our purposes today, let's dwell on the simple serenity of Mark's text. For it is only Mark, out of the four Gospels, it is only Mark who includes these words of Jesus' compassion. For they were as sheep without a shepherd. Almost certainly on Jesus' mind had to be the recent beheading of John. For to be sheep without a shepherd is to be a body without a head. In this case, the crowds who had known of John's death were nevertheless, in a sense, insulated and protected by John himself because he had faithfully pointed to the Lamb of God just as is true of every case of a faithful pastor. When he dies, the preaching of Christ goes on. To be honest, for comparison, on the other hand, what will happen to, say, the 40,000 of Houston, Texas, when Joel Osteen dies? Where will they turn now that they don't have his personality? 
that they don't get to stare at his smile and have his theistic self-help therapy to make them feel good every weekend. Unlike the televangelists, John didn't self-select and groom an apprentice. An apprentice. Instead, he pointed to his successor as one greater than himself. And as John pointed, the crowds also saw and heard in Christ's miracles that this was indeed the gospel they had been long awaiting. And so when they hear that Jesus is crossing the lake, they rush to the other side to await his arrival. Think about this for a second. How much their anticipation puts us poor sinners to shame. How much it calls us to repentance. We know that Christ is coming to forgive our sins each and every week. To serve us, His body and blood. To strengthen us in the faith. And yet so often, we must drag ourselves out of bed with much more lethargy than if waking to see an early morning international sporting event or a 4 a.m. live broadcast of a royal wedding or even rising to an important day of work. We do so probably because we know that even if we arrive here a few minutes late, we'll still have a choice of prime seating. And once we're here, it sometimes takes all of our patience to last for 70 minutes or, if by reason of strength, 80 minutes. Luther says the law requires pure motives from the bottom of the heart. But we must admit that we often do not come to the preaching of the word from the bottom of our heart. Or to the meditating upon it in our homes with a pure, united heart and mind. But the crowd seemed to follow with a fervor that comes from the bottom of the heart. And such joy of the crowd, even as it calls us to repentance, also instructs and informs us. For ask yourself, why were they running? Why did they sprint with haste around the lake with singular focus, forgetting even to think of anything to eat or drink, and arrive probably dusty and dirty and sweaty to simply sit and wait? They did so because of the gospel. The gospel fosters the desire to run to it. Faith is never blind. It trusts and holds on to and rejoices in something. Something already has fostered in the heart this fervor. Namely that something is the gospel, fostered by God in the heart. Friends, if your faith seems blind to why you come, perhaps you have forgot to meditate upon and maybe even take for granted Maybe you even take for granted the gospel for which you come. And if you have forgotten the deep riches of the gospel for which you come, perhaps it means you have forgotten your desperate need for the gospel. In which case, you must look again to the mirror of the law. The crowd of our text knew its desperate need for Jesus. Do we think ourselves beyond such desperate need? then we do not belong with the 5,000. But, if we do not belong with the 5,000, then the Good Shepherd knows no compassion for us. Because the Good Shepherd only has compassion upon sinners. He has no compassion for the self-righteous, 
But he has all the compassion in the world for sinners thirsty for the gospel. And so Jesus looks out upon this pitiable mass of sinners and he has compassion on them. And in the silence of his heart, he promises to them that he will not leave them as sheep without a shepherd. In fact, John's Gospel says that when Jesus saw the crowd, quote, he himself knew what he would do for them. Now we should also note what Jesus brought for this crowd. How did he show his gut-wrenching compassion? Though other Gospel writers mention other things, since it is only Mark who mentions that Jesus wanted to be a shepherd to them, we will stay with Mark in considering what Jesus, the shepherd, knew to give them. What is the most important thing a shepherd can give the sheep? What was it? His word and his doctrine. He taught them. In having great compassion on them, he taught them. At hour after hour, he patiently taught them. And that ought shape our expectations in coming to this hour. You see, faith needs to be informed. It needs to be taught. You might say to yourself, well, yeah, they had a sort of faith in him, but they really wanted to see miracles and healings and all that stuff. They didn't have true faith. But friends, Christ patiently teaches and nurtures and brings along childlike faith. Just because it isn't perfectly informed doesn't mean it's not faith in Jesus. And just because you have faith in Jesus doesn't mean you are beyond needing to be taught. Jesus had compassion on them by teaching them. And no matter what they originally had come for, they were so content with His Word, so satisfied with being students of His doctrine, that they didn't even notice the day had grown late and they were now without food. A shepherd's care for his sheep does not include only teaching, but also includes feeding. A shepherd feeds the sheep. Jesus is not going to let these sheep leave hungry. Instead, his compassion extends to divinely feeding them. In a few weeks, we'll consider this account based on John's text. And of course, John gets into the deep spiritual and sacramental undercurrents of the sheep being fed. We'll consider those undercurrents then. But for our simple consideration today, and our meditation this hour on Christ's care for His church, might we simply dwell on the fact that Christ cares for the crowd's physical needs, just as He does for their spiritual. Christ cares for the church in her temporal life, just as he does in her eternal life. The two cannot be separated. The sheep pen is safety for your, for your body, just as it is safety for your soul. You can trust God to forgive your trespasses and to give you your daily breath. You can trust God to save and to raise from the dead. And so he feeds the 5,000. Certainly it's miraculously achieved. Christ's divine power shows forth in his providing for your body. His divine power shows in the creation of the earth. It shows forth in his carefully patterned provision of the four seasons. His care for the crops of the earth. If we want to see the divine power of God, we look to the heavens that declare his glory. 
and to the mighty works of the earth that are his handiwork. But where the miraculous provision of bread and fish, or where his miraculous care and healing and raising of your body shows his divine power and glory, his divine mercy and forgiveness are shown in his teaching and his word alone. For it is only in his word that you hear of your salvation. You cannot look to the heavens for your salvation, nor find it in all the earth, nor sense it on account of your full belly. But to see your salvation, you may run to the word of God, where Christ Jesus and him crucified promises to be found. There you may find him dying on the cross for us. There you find him as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. There you find him winning the authority to forgive and instituting that forgiveness to be carried to us by messenger's declaration and by water and bread and wine. There, in that word, you find a God so merciful that he would see the death of his son and not condemn us all the more for it, but have compassion on us because of it. There in the Word of God, that Word that Christ patiently taught for hours on end, that Word that the crowd so joyfully took in and feasted upon that they did not even realize what time it was or that they had no earthly food. There in the Word of God is the certainty of your salvation, the very foundation of Christ's church. And if it's the foundation of the church, then what does that Word of God teach us? about the church? What does it show us? What do we dare see and hope for in this sheepfold cared for by a compassionate shepherd? It shows us that the church is not a monumental, hierarchical institution. It is not a spectacle of earthly grandeur or invincibility. It is not a model of pristine perfection. But the church is the simple, Meek, sheepfold of God. So meager in sight are its sinful sheep. Not unlike the child to be brought to the font this morning. So meager in sight are its sinful sheep that when the shepherd lays eyes on them, the sight brings him not to a sense of pride, but to a gut-wrenching compassion. The church is the sheepfold whose identity is determined not by her own beauty, but by the faithful, patient teaching and feeding of her shepherd. He who leads her to green pastures and says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Here at his pulpit and his altar is the divine rest that comes from God. Here is the content of his mercy. The fruits of the cross patiently taught and compassionately, miraculously, hand-fed to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Last sermon, Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. Here's how it reads. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. 
And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. But many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And when they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all of the towns and got there ahead of them. When they went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they went down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and they were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were about 5,000 men. Here now, for the last time, is Pastor Mark Bestial and his sermon on this text. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text, Herodias' daughter, came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, after last week's promise that the gospel of the one stronger than the strong man will go, will go out into the world, immediately on the heels comes this text in which the one specifically chosen to highlight this Jesus as the Lamb of God, this prophet is silenced by a mere birthday request. His head chopped from his neck, presented on a silver platter. Is this really... How the one stronger than the strong man expects his gospel to go to the nations. How does John go from the baptizer to the beheaded? What would put society's rulers in such an uproar? What had John done to be imprisoned and eventually meet such a fate? He had dared to disagree with the ruling class's perversion of marriage. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John had preached against Herod. Interesting word choice. Not lawful. Rulers can change their laws, but they cannot change God's laws. Not unlike sins against marriage in our day, is it? When the news of the Supreme Court decision on gay marriage broke, I sent an email to all Calvary's email addresses I have, an email including these words, I'm sure we will have much opportunity as a congregation to discuss this. After all, this issue will test our resolve for the rest of our earthly days, perhaps pointedly so, in the not-so-distant future. Well, today's Gospel reading presents a very pointed opportunity to discuss this. For John's earthly demise began with his unwillingness to let Herod define marriage. 
uncomfortable with the eerie similarity between the sins legitimized by the secular ruler in our text and by our supreme secular rulers in the last two secular rulers in the last two weeks, we grasp for ways to differentiate. Saying things like, Well, Pastor, don't exaggerate. Our rulers don't act like ruthless tyrants. They don't kill as birthday gifts and pressure into submission with the sword. No one's going to be beheaded. And that's true. It's true because our rulers don't strong arm by the threat of death. Our society works by a much more subtle attempt to control. A strong arming of thought. Consider how our nation's leaders want to win the war against terrorism. They said just this week, the war will be won not with weapons, but by changing hearts and minds. That would be great if they were proclaiming the gospel freely for sinners. But what about changing thoughts by force and away from God's will, using such force on their own subjects? A well-known elected leader recently said of Christianity's God-given view of marriage that the thinking of religion is just going to have to change. The social pressure on you is enormous, isn't it? Institutionally, our military chaplains are already being threatened with the termination of their chaplaincies if they continue to speak of homosexuality as sin. Journalists in the New York Times have, just in the last ten days, called for churches to lose their time-honored tax-exempt status so that our offerings to God would be taxed by the state as some sort of a business profit. Our synods hired legal consultants warned that lawsuits may be pursued to drive Lutheran institutions out of education at all levels. And what about lawsuits aimed at bakeries and wedding photographers, which have resulted in family businesses closing, or just this past week, for one bakery it was a fine of $135,000. And even if you believe that such institutional pressure is, exagger institutional pressure is exaggerated, or if it or if it is real, it won't really affect your daily life? Well, what are the social pressures you face individually? After all, who wants to be on the opposing side of a social media celebration that hashtag love wins? Who dares send out into the blogosphere and on Twitter and Facebook that you disagree with the notion that it is joyous and more importantly godly that two men lay with each other? Who doesn't know that the Christian will be chastised for such, quote, backwards, closed-minded, bigoted thought as believing that marriage is as narrowly defined by God today as defined by Jesus 2,000 years ago? And you know, this one blindsided the church so much, had we actually spoken up when marriage was being attacked by heterosexuals wanting premarital, extramarital, and everything but God-given marital relationships. But back then, when society was just wading into the murky waters of sexual revolution, the church didn't bother to confess the faith, but remained fearfully quiet, lest we lose our numbers. How easy to simply remain quiet now. And so the pressures of the thought police threaten the word of God and the preaching thereof. You've been very tempted to convince yourself, haven't you, that as long as I don't endorse same-sex marriage, I can simply remain quiet. If people just don't know where I stand on the issue, I don't have to say anything unless they approach me. Is that what it means to confess Christ? 
Does Christ say, whoever confesses me before men by not saying anything at all, him I will confess before my Father in heaven? No. He specifically rejects that idea when he continues and says, whoever is ashamed of me before men, him I will be ashamed of before my Father in heaven. And if you want to try to argue that being ashamed isn't the same as merely remaining silent, what good will it do if Jesus merely remains silent about you before his Father in heaven? And if we think that we can remain faithful by simply keeping silent, then heed carefully the example of Peter, who said, Master, if all fall away, I will never fall away. And Peter thought he could remain faithful and remain in the public square of Jesus' trial by keeping quiet. And how did he fare? As soon as he was questioned, deny, deny, deny. Just as Jesus had said. And so Peter's confession, I never knew the man. Friends, if you are unwilling to actively, conf- to, to actively confess the faith, what makes you think that when you are caught flat-footed and off-balance, you will then confess the truth? You need not think of Peter's denial because you probably are well aware of your own. Maybe even just within the last few weeks. Your own which proves your confession of sins to be true. Lord, I have not loved you with my whole heart. I deserve nothing but your wrath and eternal punishment. Repent and ask God to strengthen you in the good confession of Christ that love might truly win. And he will forgive you all your sins because love has won on the cross of Jesus. Let's consider this from a slightly different angle. Why does Mark's gospel, known for its brevity, known for its sense of urgency, why does Mark's gospel include such a detailed, fairly drawn-out description of something that is really quite a minor point? Why spend so much time on the beheading of John when the Lamb of God continues to march to the cross? Is it not because St. Mark wants to teach us that the strength of the gospel sometimes looks awfully weak? The smallest of problems can snowball against the Christian. John has to speak up against the sins of the ruler. The wife is more upset by John than Herod is. We all know that wrath hath no fury like a woman scorned. Then there's a birthday party with a dancing daughter who wants John's head as her gift. Seems like bad break after bad break for John so that everything seems hopelessly lost. And how easy to despair and grow despondent when it seems that Jesus is unwilling to deliver us from such spiraling. Even as John had once asked, remember, are you the Christ? Or should we expect another? And yet Christ Christ had strengthened John's resolve for this exact moment by saying to John's disciples, go and tell John what you see. Many are healed. The dead raised up. The gospel continues to be preached to the poor. 
And John knows the gospel will win out. He trusts in Jesus' promises, even unto death. Ought you be encouraged by John's confession to consider your own? Certainly, absolutely. But recall, John was not merely an example. He was a herald. John pointed his hearers to Jesus. And there's the point of this text, isn't it? The messenger may be silenced, but the message cannot be. It continues to ring out long after John is dead. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's preaching was not about himself, but the purpose of every preacher is to point his hearers to Christ. I must decrease, and he must increase, John had said. And the herald's beheading shows to what extent heralds must point to the one greater. All hope hinges on the one to whom John pointed. If John himself cannot be stronger than the strong man, if our own preachers so easily succumb to death, then we must hope that the Lamb of God to whom John points is the one to expect for our salvation. John's death and the current events of our day lead all pastors to repent where they may have sought to build up for themselves a cult of personality. No more can churches be built on a preacher's popularity. Because if you just want everyone to like you, you'll cave on the most basic issues. Man and woman joined in marriage as God had designed it. You'll cave even on that, lest society label you a bigot. This text calls us preachers to repentance that we might also learn from John to lower our heads and say, Christ must increase and I must decrease. And that perhaps calls you to repentance too. For it asks you to judge why you come to church. Is it because you like it? Or you think your pastor is a persona worth following? Or somehow that the congregation of fellow Christians will always stand fast in the truth? Or always show Christian love in the truth? What futility? Is it because everything here is socially acceptable? Doesn't rock the boat with how your daily life is going? Well, then you'll have to become something completely different to still be loved by our society? Or do you come to this pulpit and altar because here the truth of Jesus Christ, He who is the way, the truth, and the life, the truth of Jesus Christ, Him crucified for sinners, is proclaimed with benefits of forgiveness, life, and salvation, administered, given freely, according to His will. Friends, if this is not the single purpose that you come to this altar, you will end up a victim of the pressures of the godless thought police. And you will be ashamed of the gospel. And Christ will be ashamed of you. But if Jesus' priceless treasure is your single purpose in coming, then rejoice. For the crucified and risen Christ Himself comes to serve you 
Comes himself to proclaim forgiveness from hell for your poor confession in times past. Comes himself to teach you the proper confession for the future. Comes himself to nourish and sustain you with his very body and blood so that you might have strength to always give a reason for the hope that is in you. And notice that, friends. Christ does not call you to give a reason for everything you denounce. Christianity is not legalism. It's not about saying no to every sinful desire just for the sake of saying no. Rather, Christ's doctrine teaches you the reason for your hope in Him. Whoever confesses me, He says, not just my law, but whoever confesses me before men, that you might be ready to confess to your friend, neighbor, co-worker, family member who advocates sexual sins or perhaps himself takes part in such sexual identity. You may confess in a way that shows that you don't just hold to the gospel because you hold to the law but you also joyfully live by God's law because it's the will of the God of the gospel. And so you may say to that dear soul, that dear poor soul ensnared in error's maze, you may say, friend, you follow your ways, you identify yourself by them because you genuinely hope and society tells you to hope that such temporal self-satisfaction will bring you eternal joy and gladness. But this too will fail you. This, too, will leave you unfulfilled. It will fall short of its promise. It will end in despair because this, too, falls short of God's righteousness and this, too, will end in the grave. But let me give you a reason for the hope that is in me, friend. Christ died for my sins. Christ gave me His life and took on my death. Christ is my righteousness. Christ has defined marriage with His own love for His bride, the church. As the Apostle says, this mystery of marriage is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and His church. And because Christ is the Holy Bridegroom, He has promised me the inheritance of heaven and victory over the grave. As a loving husband does for his wife, Christ serves and sustains me to this day with law and gospel, so that my sins are washed away and sin's temptations will not overpower me. And, you can say, Christ died for you as well, friend. Christ died that your sins might be washed away and temptations may not overpower you. Even as the Apostle said, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, the Apostle says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There, friend, you can say to your fellow sinner, there is the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the free forgiveness, justification, sanctification, which is my certain hope, a gospel and baptismal way of life for you too. Friends, the Word of God is such a treasure that we can confidently proclaim law and gospel to fellow sinners who, like us, would eternally benefit from Christ crucified. We can call one another to sacrifice riches, life, and limb for this gospel. When the heralds of the gospel are publicly, publicly ridiculed and fined and imprisoned, whatever the cost for preaching the gospel might one day be in this land, we can defend them. We can confess shoulder to shoulder with them. 
We can visit them in prison, encourage them, sacrifice for them, lay them in their tombs, care for their families. And most importantly, we can follow where they are pointing to Jesus' priceless treasure. For long after the messenger is silenced, and long after secular kingdoms crumble, the gospel remains. Christ is still Christ. His promises are still His blood-bought promises. And He will continue to sustain His church until He vindicates her from all her enemies on the final day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.